Bibles tonight. We're just in the last section of Revelation chapter 2. One of the most, um, I think, pressing things about the seven letters to the seven churches are what they tell us about Jesus' will that His church be pure and holy. And by pure, by the way, I don't necessarily mean sinless. I mean faithfully committed to the truth of His gospel in both doctrine and practice. We've seen that love conquers the last days. There's a love that conquers the last days. There's a suffering and a fidelity that conquered the last days. The letter to Thyatira, interestingly, is the longest of the seven. It stands also as the centerpiece of the seven, being the fourth church. It's just like Jesus to design this structure because, as Colin Hemer writes, the longest and most difficult of the seven letters is addressed to the least known, least important, and least remarkable of the cities. Thyatira was not nearly as renowned as the other cities uh, in the book of Revelation. It had been a military outpost on the western border of the kingdom of Seleucus, who ruled from Antioch in Syria. It was located kind of in the middle of this very broad valley, so it wasn't very well protected at all. It was an easy target for capture over the years, which meant it had repeatedly changed hands, changed allegiances uh, in you know Eastern Mediterranean politics, in particular between the death of Alexander the Great and the rise of what we know as Rome, the Roman Empire. It lacked the political, the religious significance to Rome that the other cities had that we're talking about in Asia Minor. Its identity was shaped more than than its identity shaped um, by the imperial cult. Its identity was shaped by commerce, manufacturing industries with a trade guild over each one that had its own uh, patron god or goddess that they worshipped, but they were also loyal at this time to Rome. Archaeologists discovered that most of these guilds centered on metalworking or they centered on uh, the dyeing of fabrics. Lydia, the woman who uh, became a believer in Philippi in Acts chapter 16, remember she was an exporter of purple cloth from Thyatira. The economic sphere of life very heavily influenced the culture of this city, mainly through these trade guilds. That was how you had any standing in society. That's how you were known. That's what you were marked by. That's the religion you had, the God you worshipped. It made it very difficult then for the church to retain its fidelity to the truth because like in many of these cities, to be outside of this uh, would have been very obvious. You would not have been able to hide it. Where you worked would tell people what you believed and so on and so forth. The issues in Thyatira, we'll notice this, are almost identical to the ones in Pergamum, But Thyatira and Pergamum are similar in how different they are from the church in Ephesus. Ephesus, if you remember, the first letter was faithful to the truth. They were faithful to sound doctrine. They allowed no heresy, but they did so at the expense of love for people. In both Pergamum and Thyatira, however, they abounded in love for other people, but at the expense of doctrine, at the expense of the truth, as we see many churches uh, repeating this error today. Jesus' letter to the church in Thyatira, especially given its centrality among the seven, here's the thing, is particularly crucial for all churches in all times to hear. Maybe more than any other, this letter reminds us that Jesus is aware, deliberately aware, of everything going on in His churches, 
for the sake of holiness, of faithfulness to his mission. We constantly need reminded, the church does, that Jesus Christ is searching us. Searching us. Beloved, we need to listen to this letter here in little, mostly, maybe the outside world would consider insignificant Moundsville. For how aware of his church are his watching eyes if he also searches little insignificant places? Jesus Christ, the Son of God, searches our minds and our hearts to keep us holy by a vigilance to discern truth from error in the last days. So let me pray and we'll begin. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your truth and I pray, Lord, that you would let us see it and believe and understand it and walk in it, Father. Please help me speak clearly tonight. Help me speak concisely so that all may understand. May I not get in the way of what you've said in this text, but bring it out, Father, for all of us to see and to believe. Help us, Father. Please help me. Please overcome everything I would bring into this pulpit that would infect the preaching of your word with the flesh. Please stand by me, Father. Stand over me. Stand underneath me. Help us all listen. We ask in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's look at verses 18 and 19 here, first of chapter 2. He says, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. That title, each time we've started a letter, we've seen John draw images, or Jesus, I'm sorry, draw images from Revelation 1 relative to each church's unique need, or whatever he needed to say to them. To them, The title, Son of God, this is a first here in Revelation. It's not mentioned explicitly in chapter 1, but it is alluded to with the title that is in chapter 1, the Son of Man, chapter 1, verse 13, which alludes to the designation of Jesus in Psalm 2, 7 through 9. As does, you'll see the later, the promise that the one who conquers here will share with the Son of God in His authority over the nations, ruling them with a rod of iron. This comes later in verses 26 and 27. The holiness of Jesus is being portrayed for us here. Manifested first in eyes like a flame of fire in verse 1. So from the top of His head, He is pure and holy to the soles of His feet that the text says are like burnished bronze. Thyatira, then, we're seeing, needs to look into these flaming eyes that are looking at them with good but naive intentions, as we'll see. They had forgotten the need for doctrinal discernment in their love for people or desire to love people. This has created a need for the reminder later in verse 23 that the one with the burning eyes searches minds and hearts. The burnished bronze of his feet, which back in 115 were described as also refined in a furnace. We've seen furnaces in the Bible before. This recalls the book of Daniel again and that furnace where Daniel's three friends were thrown, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And if you remember the heavenly son of man who had eyes like flaming torches and feet like burnished bronze, you remember this, who is called in Daniel 325, one like a son of the gods delivered 
these three friends. Jesus is telling the church that just as a or one who was like a son of God protected them in persecution, so will Christ, the son of God, do the same spiritually for the faithful in Thyatira. But the title son of God here is also a swipe at these guilds and the way they controlled culture. A local guild deity, Apollo Tyramnaeus, and the divine emperor, of course, both of whom, by the way, in Thyatira were referred to as sons of the god Zeus, meaning Thyatira and Christians needed to give exclusive worship to Jesus, the Son of God, and trust Him to provide for their needs, since He alone is the actual Son of God. Jesus knows their works. They excel. They excel. And He makes the point here, in love and faith and service in patient endurance. This is a Christ-like church in this regard. They are living out the fruits of the gospel. In fact, their more recent works they've been doing in verse 19 actually exceed the first. We're intended in that to remember Ephesus and how they had lost the love they had at first. In Thyatira, they had improved in service to others and in love to others over time to such a degree it exceeded how much they loved and served people in the beginning. So they really are the exact opposite of Ephesus. So it begs the question, what could be wrong here? If you're doing the right things, what could be the complaint? That's all that truly matters. We have sayings like the one attributed to St. Augustine, which he probably didn't say, Preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. Right. The implication being that the way you live is a much bigger witness than the message that you preach. And you could even preach the gospel without saying anything by the way you live. This is not true. The gospel is a spoken word, a spoken message that needs to be proclaimed. God does not weigh the word that we speak against the deeds that we do as his people. Where one is properly present, so will the other be. Look at verse 20 here. Let's read down to 23. He says, But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. So the church was strong in love and in faith, in service and patient endurance, right? So it would seem like just the perfect church, but they were weak in their fidelity to the truth of the word. Dennis Johnson described Thyatira's weakness as a lack of discernment that took people at face value rather than putting them to the test of truth. They had apparently given reign to at least one false teacher, it is influencing the church to compromise with the idolatrous, idolatrous parts of this pagan society. And the nature of this false teaching is explained by an allusion to the compromising relationship that Jezebel had with Israel in the Old Testament. Again, this is probably not the woman's real name. This would be like naming your boy Adolf or Saddam at this point. So it's, it's very unlikely 
that anybody would have would have anybody would have uh, deliberately named their child Jezebel. So it's probably not her real name, but she is a prophetess, or at least claimed to be. So she's most likely a member of the church, or she wouldn't be able to exert this influence over them. She's obviously in some type of power uh, position where she's able to exert this corrupting influence on the Thyatiran church as Jezebel, the princess of Sidon, wife of of Ahab, worked in Israel. It's the same spirit. Deeply, she was deeply involved in ministry in Thyatira. Again, she had some type of leadership that enabled her to lead many in the church to compromise. Notice what the text says. She calls herself a prophetess. In verse 20, that's not what she actually is from God's perspective. Not the legitimate gift from the Holy Spirit that the scripture talks about in 1 Corinthians. She, however, did prophesy. She had a lot to say, and it apparently amazed many in the church and drew them away. But she did so through the power of Satan and not the Holy Spirit. If you remember, Israel, the kings had been commanded not to intermarry with pagans. King Ahab disobeyed. He married the daughter of Ethbile, king of the Sidonians, who began to influence King Ahab negatively as God warned them about. And he in turn introduced Baal worship to the worship of Yahweh in Israel. Her influence, her corrupting influence on Ahab was so bad. So bad. So that's what John is drawing from here, or Jesus is in his letter, that in 1 Kings 16.31 it reads, Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. She had a horrible influence on the holiness and the set-apartness of God's people. You remember she uh, brought up the plot to murder Naboth. Uh, When she died, she was thrown out of a window. She was trampled by a horse. Dogs ate her. There wasn't even enough for a burial. Well, by here, she'd been dead over a thousand years. But that influence, that spirit now rested on this false prophetess in Thyatira. If that was her literal name... That's probably why that was her literal name. It speaks to the depth of that particular kind of corruption in the church when it gets into a place of leadership. The Christians there have done well, right? But they've allowed a commitment to be kind and loving to go too far to the extent that they're even willing to tolerate this woman. Some even engaged with her in the immorality and idolatry, literally. It looks like a minority of the church were doing this, but the church as a whole was permitting it. They weren't stopping it. They weren't speaking out against it. So this is most likely a leadership issue, a fault among the pastors there. And yet look at verse 21 and the merciful patience of Jesus in all this. I gave her time to repent. He gave a false prophet, prophetess, time to repent and return to him. But she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. That is code for she is not a believer. Believers don't refuse to repent. We, we, we don't say, I will not repent of that sin. Right? That's, that's not the attitude of heart that a believer would ever take. If they were struggling with a sin and didn't, didn't want to give it up, they would use different language. They, they wouldn't say, I flat out refuse to repent of my sins. Right? They'd find a way to twist it and work it so it didn't sound so bad. Even a false prophetess undermining and destroying all that God had done in the church and her adherence had still been given time to repent in the mercy of God, but they had refused. And again, God has had enough. 
God has had enough. The patience of Jesus is not indifference. He does care what his church is doing. So he's saying, look, she is finished. As far as she goes, I'm going to judge her and he's going to judge her then and there. Right. Again, we could wonder, is she a Christian? I don't think so. But when you read this, the judgment comes in a form of personal disease or affliction. It looks like that is very similar to the language in first Corinthians 11. We talked about that, I think, last week a little bit, which was judgment that pertained to Christians in that text with varying degrees of discipline. So that can happen. Even those deceived, however, in verse 20, Jesus still calls them my servants, right? Do you notice that? But her refusal to repent has revealed a fallen heart. The truly born again, this is what Jesus is doing here. The truly born again will hear the word of Jesus and they will repent, at least eventually. Her children here, I think, are different than my servants because those are God's children, right? Her children are gone with her. They've acted the same as she did. Notice they're her children, not God's children. While adherence to her, those who were permitting her to speak were caught up in her teachings in verse 20, they would have repented. Her spiritual children did not repent. This is an important theme in Revelation all throughout. We'll try to pull it out every time we see it. Spiritual adultery, unfaithfulness to God, is almost always referred to in terms of sexual immorality. So there, there, there's a sense in which this would be a a spiritual and inward sin. However, here it's gone beyond that. This is actual immoral sexual practices that professing Christians are taking part in because of this woman's influence in the church. Trade guild banquets, that's what they did. Uh, these were um, held in honor of the patron deities. This is part of what it meant to belong to guilds, right? Um, you, you, you did not not attend these things. You did not not go... To them, I tried to join, or I tried to inquire about. I didn't actually join. Inquire about joining the Sons of Italy that's over in Bel Air because I think that was cool. They never emailed me back, so I don't know. But when there are things that, when you join them, to not be associated with them is frowned upon very much. And here, it meant everything. If you refuse to join in them, to opt out of such events would mean forfeiting social acceptance. It would mean risking economic loss. There was a prophetess, or this prophetess taught that Christians could and should participate in such things, is what it seems like is happening here. She taught very dangerous doctrine, and this is a trademark of false prophets. How did she accomplish this? She claimed special revelation and insight that other Christians, probably the elders in the church, she would say, did not have. But what she called the deep things of God, probably, Jesus calls the deep things of Satan, down in verse 24. She's a local expression, then, of the harlot Babylon who appears in Revelation 17. Just a local expression of that. The harlot seducing kings and nations and merchants to commit adultery against God with her. Why are her devotees, or this is why her devotees are called those who commit adultery with her, in verse 22, but just like the harlot Babylon's fall would mean that her lovers would suffer horrible punishment. Her lovers here in Revelation 2 are cast into grief with her and will experience severe disciplines that he calls here great tribulation for her lovers here in verse 22. So she advocated for adultery that was both sexual and spiritual. And if you think about it, it would be just like the enemy to use this kind of strategy 
in a city dominated by trade guilds. The enemy influences a woman to call herself a prophetess, claiming special insight from God to reveal the deeper things of God. How often do we hear that? Right? They they have the, the deeper things of God, the mysterious things of God, like maybe the fact that Christians don't need to suffer economic loss by refusing to engage with the pagans and their, you know, immoral idolatrous celebrations. You can participate in the Roman cult, right? You don't have to not do this. God has uh, told me this, right? That's my favorite. I, well, God told me, right? That's how uh, you hear phrases like this. Well, I prayed and God revealed to me. And it's like everybody prays. That's a Christian. We, we all pray, right? You, you can't just say, but God told me something, right? That he didn't tell you. It's, it's all, we, we use this language so much. We normally use it to manipulate, right? Because we, we don't have truth. The, the, the example I always think of is like, um, you know, a guy in seminary saying to a girl, it's, I think it's God's will. God told me that, that he wants us to get married. And I always feel bad for the lady when she says, well, he didn't tell me that. Right. He just he just told you. But this this idea, this is how false prophets gain, um, gain their influence. They claim special revelation. If if a people are not grounded in the word, as they were struggling with in Thyatira, they'll be taken by this. They'll be deceived by this. Materialism, then, is as big a threat to the church's lampstand as persecution is. Right. The idea that they could retain these acts and loyalty to these patron deities. God is not patient because God doesn't care about sin. But so people will repent. That's why he's been long-suffering in Thyatira. Meaning Jesus had given time for the church to show real love to Jezebel and her adherents. And in this case, real love would be to confront her, to demand her repentance, and if she refuses, throw her out. We're not going to tolerate your deception here anymore. It is also loving to speak the truth in love, right? In Ephesians 4, 15, this they had not done, and it's created an absolute mess at the church in Thyatira. Beloved, church discipline, removing an unrepentant member, and the demand of exclusive loyalty to Jesus and his gospel will always seem narrow-minded. It seemed narrow-minded to the pluralistic world of Hellenism in the Roman Empire. It seems extremely narrow-minded today in our tolerant and relativistic society. But to confront what is false and proclaim the truth without shame, without adjustment, for the sake of ease and acceptance, this expresses the love of Jesus for His bride. We cannot adjust the gospel to make it easier for people to swallow or make us more likable or to be accepted by a world Jesus promised would hate us. To faithfully proclaim the gospel expresses the love of Jesus for his bride and for his people. Jesus isn't going to put up with any rivals, right? None are as great a husband as he is. He's given time to repent. They won't let the, he won't let the adultery go unchecked. And the amazing love of this husband is expressed here in both punishment and the warning to them of the unfaithful and the rescue of the faithful, also those who repented or had never fallen into the same sins. Look at the second part of verse 23 again. This is important. And all the churches will know through his judgment of Jezebel, right? And all the churches will know, just like Ananias and Sapphira, 
back in Acts chapter 5, when the whole, the, the whole place stood in awe of what had happened. And all the churches will know that I am He who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your work. So this lesson is not just for Thyatira. All the churches need to remember this about Jesus. He is the one who searches mind and heart and will give to each one according to their works. And in this case, whether or not they repent or whether they remain unrepentant, those are the works he's speaking of here. By the way, he reiterates Son of God here. Since Jesus is quoting Yahweh from Jeremiah 17.10, right? You remember that? I, the Lord, Yahweh, search minds and hearts. Jesus is claiming to be God. This is why he's revealed himself there as the Son of God. He means through insignificant little Thyatira. Jesus will show all the churches that he does not tolerate undiscerning tolerance, right? which invites the poison of the snake into his church. And he won't have this. We pick it up in verse 24. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. Those who conquer, those who repent, those who hold fast. Jesus says they will share in his messianic authority as the enthroned son of God from Psalm 2. Insignificant little Thyatira had been a pawn in regional politics throughout most of their existence. Jesus promises them a share in his authority over all the nations, which I believe he's exerting right now at the right hand of the Father as all his enemies are being brought underneath his feet through the spread of the gospel unstoppably to all nations before his return. The mission of Jesus is the proof of his reign. In Revelation 19.5, the one who rules with the rod of iron is the warrior word of God. It's Christ himself. But here the focus is on the conqueror who shares his authority with him. But there's something way better than that. To strengthen the hearts of the repentant and those who haven't taken part in this sin in Thyatira. To the one who conquers, to the one who is repentant and therefore holy, he says in verse 28, I will give him the morning star. Now, All through these letters, very interestingly, Balaam, another so-called prophet, has figured very prominently in these letters, right? He, of course, had a vision. Do you remember what he saw? He saw a star emerging from Jacob, remember? A scepter rising out of Israel to crush Moab in Numbers 24, 17. The star scepter represents the warrior king, who finally identifies himself for us in the book of Revelation. Did you know that? Revelation chapter 22, verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. What is the morning star? The morning star is Jesus. 
And he not only promises his people to share in his dominion, but the most precious and valuable and beautiful treasure of all, beloved, himself. I will give you myself. This is why, if you take all the other reasons aside, this is why the church must be repentant and must pursue holiness. We want to see Jesus. We want to be given the morning star. And the repentant will be. The repentant conquer. Now, we are very far removed from Thyatira, right? We don't really have trade guilds. We have clubs and things like that, but they don't shape our lives in the same way. But we need to heed this warning. Because the enemy doesn't sleep and his tactics don't change too much, right? Just different parts about them. How did this woman ever come to have such power and influence in the church, right? How were born again believers apparently sold out to living out what the gospel had done in their hearts? How were they so deceived as to indulge in this level of false teaching and immoral practices. How did this take hold? Because she probably didn't hold an official office in the church. She just claimed to be a prophetess. She claimed to have special revelation. And she did prophesy or she wouldn't have had any influence at all. People are enamored by the idea of unique or special revelation. They always have been. They always will be. Anybody that claims to know things other people can't possibly know, That's the way a false prophet gains their footing. God has told me things he's kept from you. Right? God has shown me things he hasn't shown you. Paul, the great apostle, spoke of himself in the third person about a revelation he was given so that he wouldn't become puffed up. Other people sell books with it. Right? You know, the, the, the visions I've had of Jesus and that I've heard Jesus speak to me and what he's revealed to me about the Bible. And again, the best-selling books normally are the ones that promise new information that's previously undiscovered. Right? How, for the best-selling books in um, Christian culture over the past 10 years have been, uh, of course, there was the Prayer of Jabez. That was the big one back in the early 2000s. Uh, that if you said this prayer that this obscure man that's mentioned once said, uh, then your border would increase and you'd get more money. And well, that didn't work, apparently. And then, um, you know, all the books about heaven, right? All, the, all the, the, the little kids that die and go to heaven for a while. Whereas John had to fall on his face as though he was dead. These little kids can just walk around heaven wearing a sweater and khakis and eating lollipops and looking at stuff. And Jesus is telling them all kinds of things. And we're, we're just, we're enamored with this stuff, with new revelation, special revelation, anything that promises more, right? Something new, something more relevant, something more helpful. Right? We, we, we know about the sufficiency of Jesus. Tell me something I can use, right? I, I, my experiences are not that unique. I just, I was literally told that in a, in a meeting with a family. They were leaving our church because, and I quote, all you ever do is preach about the sufficiency of Jesus. That's what they said to me. And they said, we need something we can use. Now I know, I know what they were getting at. I understand that like, I just don't see how that connects to my daily struggles and things. I, I understand that on the surface. But when, when we think of Jesus, even in our semantics, as insufficient, we are bait for the enemy to slip in with false knowledge. 
I can give you what you need. God has shown me things, right? And so on and so on. False prophets, even ones that are unintentionally false prophets. I'm not saying that everyone who who says those things or those phrases is being controlled by the enemy and means to hurt us. And I, I don't mean that. I'm saying even unintentional false prophets have to claim an insight that others don't have in order to validate themselves. The thing is, it is possible, as it was in her case, to prophesy, in the worst cases, by the power of Satan. Satan is always the one behind the lies, whether the participant is a willing one or not. The demons enabled her to do something that apparently appeared to be very similar to Christians prophesying at that time in the, in the legitimate power of the Holy Spirit. We need to remember this can happen. False prophesying. That's why we can't forget to be discerning, especially if as a church we desire to be more committed to the magicians or, or to uh, the mission. Remember the Egyptian magicians. They did literal amazing things, but they did it by the power of Satan. This is his strategy. Remember Jesus in Matthew 7. Many prophesied in his name, they said. But Jesus said he never knew them. In Acts 16, you had a slave girl with a spirit of divination and fortune telling that identified Paul and Silas correctly as servants of the Most High God. In 2 Thessalonians 2, Satan himself is said, in the last days he'll perform lying signs and wonders to deceive. So don't believe everything you hear. Please, right? just don't believe everything you hear. It's not that I'm the only voice you can listen to. It's don't believe everything you hear. Beloved, our church must be a discerning church or we will not be a holy church. And if we are not a holy church, we aren't a church. When the enemy moves to manipulate and to destroy God's people and what they're doing, he rarely is going to do so in obvious, recognizable ways. He's not going to come to us dressed like the enemy. He's going to use these things to twist the truth, which if you'll notice, he is almost always done. Satan doesn't try to create new truth per se. He just twists the truth. It's what he's done since the beginning, a liar and a murderer. Since the beginning, he twists the truth. He mimics God when he can to undermine our faith. So he'll sow another strategy is sowing seeds of distrust in the qualified, recognized leaders, meaning they've met the qualifications. They've been recognized by the church. He'll sow seeds of distrust in them. And by his deceptive and powerful spirit, he'll raise up in their place false teachers claiming they have special revelation or insight that others just don't have. You can normally recognize somebody like this by a lack of willingness to be accountable to anybody or or a willingness, no willingness to submit to anybody, right? And so they just, as though all are beneath them, other people haven't come as far as they have, they don't know what they know. That's, That's probably how Jezebel got her influence. That's... Very appealing. When somebody can appeal to their personality, their charisma, right? Which thankfully I have none. Or they, they can appeal to their knowledge or their special anointing, right? When, when you begin to hear those things. Or that, that God said to me this, God told me this, just be careful. Let your ears perk up and say, okay, 
Because if, if you start out with God told me and then you don't say something in here, look, I, we, we really, really, really need to be careful. Right? Because what that means is what God has certainly said is not enough. That's where the problem is starting. Right? That's where the problem is starting. This woman corrupted a fruitful and faithful church. She did it. Right? And in verse 23, no church is immune to this spirit, to this very thing. We must be vigilant if we're going to conquer. We, there has to be, and again, especially relative to talking about the end times. And even things like that in Scripture, there, there are many things you and I can charitably agree to disagree on, right? The truth, however, the, the clear truth of Scripture is not one of those things. We cannot be having debates about whether or not Jesus is actually the Son of God, whether Jesus was actually born of a virgin, whether the Word of God actually is the Word of God inspired by Him. These, these, these are discussions. We can have discussions, right? But we can't be letting in truth or, or teaching that deliberately undermines what the Scripture clearly teaches. Some things are clearer than others, right? And on those, we must always agree. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, searches our minds and hearts to keep us holy. That's why He's telling us this by or through a vigilance in us to discern truth from error, particularly in these last days. He has eyes like a flame of fire, feet like burnished bronze. He searches us and knows us to the core. Right? How relevant is the statement in the second part of 23? And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. Right? You understand Jesus' strategy here, how passionate he is for the holiness of his church. We're meant to be saying, as time goes on, the churches in these times, you know that lady that was corrupting the church in Thyatira? Um, God killed her, right? God killed her. She got sick and died. We don't want to make that same mistake, right? It's, it's If God did this sort of thing all the time, that's a pretty scary thought. Right. If, if, in other words, God's M.O. right now is to give time for repentance. In 2 Peter 3.9, that's why he's tarrying as we speak, because he's desiring that all would come to repentance. Right. That, that's the long-suffering, the patience of the Lord. But there are times like this. There is, as First John, however we take that, there is a sin that leads to death. There is, there is a way that will not be tolerated. Right. And here... It wasn't. When you, let's, let's close like this. When, when, when we read this sentence, let me read it again, okay? And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. Not sometimes. All the time. And I will give to each of you according to your works. I heard this, a preacher asked this question about this statement. How much thought do we give? on a daily basis to the fact that Jesus is thinking about what we're thinking about all the time. How much thought do we give to this truth? That Jesus is thinking about and searching what I am thinking about all the time.
Not even our thoughts are outside the burning gaze of the Holy Son of God. He knows everything. He literally knows everything. The question is, does his omniscience have any significant impact on our personal lives or our lives together as his church at all? Notice the themes in these letters are generally the same in one way or the other, just in different maybe applications of it. Jesus is omniscient. He knows, he hears, he sees, he searches, he's investigating. That is a powerful thought to carry around. Any time, I mean, any time in any place, he's searching my mind and my heart. When do I not need purified? Right? When do I not need to be repentant? Not in hopelessness, not in despair, but because he's searching to make us holy, to root out what is impure, right? As a church, as his people. A compromised church has no witness, beloved. A compromised church has no witness, no lampstand, and therefore, in some sense, no use. So, what is the remedy here? It's amazing. Hold fast to what you have until I come. In verse 25. That's it. So I'm not going to lay any other burden on you. Notice his kindness here. I don't, you don't need to be worried about anything. Hold fast to what you have until I come. Well, what do they have? What do we have? The gospel. The truth of God's word. Christ crucified for sinners. Paul said he determined to know nothing among those believers other than Christ crucified. Here's the thing. Beloved, that's enough. It's enough. When, when we start to desire deeper things than what He has revealed by His Spirit in His Word, we are setting ourselves up to be deceived by Satan himself. And listen, it's a lack of doctrinal purity that always precedes outward immorality. That That's what he does. That's what the enemy wants to do. Change your beliefs so that you will behave differently because he knows once you're compromised to a certain extent, you're done. You're compromised. Right? If If a preacher is having numerous affairs and it comes out, his ministry, as far as the validation of it, is over, right? At least in the eyes of people. Look, even the pagans will eventually say, ooh, right? Like, like that's, that's enough. There was a bishop in Atlanta, Georgia, several years ago. It comes out after all, and he was a, he called himself a prophet. He had a, you know, a huge ministry, very wealthy, that whole thing. And it comes out that he was, because they did a DNA test that revealed his Nephew was his grandson. So you can figure out how that happened. But he had been having immoral relations with numerous underage girls and boys for years. Right? Do you know how a person like that maintains power? Trust me, I have the insight from God. To the, when people are deceived by this, they will defend that person to the death. 
And that person will say, you're not supposed to touch God's anointed ones. That's what you hear all the time. Don't, don't listen to people that insult God's prophet. Beloved, every believer has the ability to discern whether somebody is true or false. Every believer. Right? It, it's, these things are, they are so corrupting and so deadly and so dangerous. Again, the holiness here, the, the, the purity of the church is, is not our sinlessness. It's our repentance here in context, right? It, it is the one who conquers is the one who repents in light of the warning I'm about to give. Right? It, when a church is repentant, a church is holy. He's enough. It's enough. The truth of God revealed to us in the word is enough. We, we, we don't need more. And there isn't anything better. He forgives us. He makes us His own. He purifies us. He makes us holy by His blood, cleansing us of our filthiness and His righteousness, covering us in holiness. He gives us the light of His truth that pierces all darkness in this message of grace we take to one another and to the Ohio Valley and to all the nations. Jesus Christ and the truth He reveals in His Word is all we need. It's all we need. If somebody's teaching uses the Word to help you dig deeper into the Word and understand the Word, praise God for it. If somebody's teaching tries to get you to leave the Word and look for more, please run from it. All right? Please run from it. We've all probably seen Joel Osteen on TV. And at the beginning of every sermon, he has everybody hold up their Bible. This is my Bible. I wish they'd just be honest. This is my Bible. I have no idea what it says, and I couldn't care less what it says because God wants me to win and all that nonsense. And just, beloved, Jesus is all we need. Our holiness depends on whether or not we believe that. And Jesus searches with burning eyes like a flame of fire our minds and hearts to keep us pure, to keep us vigilant, because the enemy will not rest. He will not rest. This is enough. What we have in this word is enough, beloved. It's enough. Our holiness depends on it.